0: So when I think about people who don't think about the formatting of their code while they're writing it, it's just like a moment where you're like, oh, this person sees the world in a way that is different than I see the world, and is that going to become a point of friction for us? And it's a question mark. So, I forget how we got onto this.
1: One. <laughs> doesn't it doesn't matter. It was, do you have testers?
0: Of <laughs> <All right. laughs> You're listening to Working Code with your hosts, one of whom probably just wrote a new JavaScript library, Adam, Ben, Carol, and Tim.
1: Okay, here we go. It is show number 86 for August 3rd. And since I mentioned the date, you know that it's important. It is going to be... A couple of days from now, when this episode is released, the 22nd anniversary of the Joel test, which we'll get into what that is. So we thought it'd be a good opportunity to take a look back, maybe revisit it and see what we might keep and what we might revise going forward if we were kings of how you do business. But as usual, we're going to start with our triumphs and failures. Tim and Carol couldn't make it tonight. So once again, just me and Ben. Ben, I guess that means I'm coming
0: to you first. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm going to kick us off with a failure, which is just that I have felt underwater lately. I had mentioned in the previous episode that we just moved into a new house and that's very exciting. But there's also just been a lot of work associated with that and just the emotional stress of settling in and unpacking. And my my network here, my network connection is not solid. So there's a little lag between Adam and I. If you guys hear us talking over each other a little bit, I got a call spectrum and see if i can figure that out and then just work has been really crazy and i just i'm i feel like i'm racing around it's almost like i feel short of breath emotionally if that makes sense and Hmm. i just like i just want a a hot minute to relax it feels like i haven't been able to relax
1: well i think we can take care of the hot part
0: (laughs) (laughs) oh my god Uh, speaking of hot the this heat waves are crazy yeah I don't want to be a total drag here, so I will end my rant with a small triumph, which is that I built a, a new dog bed. And when mm-hmm. I say built, I mean I constructed, not that I carved or anything, but like I, bought, Ikea. Uh, some, yeah, I bought some some wire metro shelving and uh, I got some short poles and then you can ad- you adjust these things. I went to Petco and I bought a nice big like two foot by three foot bed and it's, it's like eight times larger than my dog. And yes. I propped it up, so now she can get up and she can look out the window, and she's sort of chest height with me. So we have a lot of camaraderie during the day, and I'm pretty excited about that. So, so that's a small victory here in the ability to to pull a little value out of the uh, the failure. Nice. Seems
1: like you you really value spending that quality time with the dog while you're working.
0: Oh heck, yeah, yeah. She's my co-pilot. <laughs> It's so awesome. <laughs> nice. Uh, what about you, Adam? What do you got going on?
1: I guess I'm going to call it a Triumph. So for those in the know, if you know, you know. I jumped in front of the SOC 2 bus, and basically the Triumph is I think I'm going to live. The SOC 2, if you're not familiar, is a certification that's called System and Organization Controls, I believe is what the SOC part stands for. And it basically it's a certification that you can get from, of all things, like CPA I think it's the IACPA, the, like the International Association of Certified Public Accountants. But as a certification, you can get that you're meeting the standards that they set for this certification, right? So it's about security, privacy, confidentiality. There's a bunch of these, I forget what they're called, TSCs, Trust System whatever something's trust system controls, maybe, I don't know. And basically, it's a giant pain in the butt way to prove like in a B2B scenario, like a business to business, if you're trying to sell a product to a business, basically, especially if you are a SaaS, a service as a uh, software as a service, it's a way to prove that you are doing your due diligence in terms of security, privacy, confidentiality, et cetera, et cetera. It's apparently a very laborious and difficult and tedious process to go through on your own. There's like hundreds of questions and you have to provide all kinds of evidence of everything from your password policy to does every developer's machine use full disk encryption to like are passwords rotated after somebody leaves the company? And there's hundreds of these questions. And so you have to have policies like formal written policies on all of these different things. And you have to show evidence that you are obeying those policies, and it's a whole complicated process. And of course, because of the complexity, there's a bunch of vendors that want to sell you compliance software in that space. And I've been interviewing them and working on figuring out which one I want to go with and just trying to make my own life a little bit better. But basically, this is one of those situations where my CEO said, okay, we need to do this. I don't have the time to do it. Can I have a volunteer? And so I stepped in front of that bus.
0: What do you mean when you say you're looking for a vendor? Vendor to do what,
1: exactly? That's a good question. So what they do, basically, each of these companies that I've been talking to seems to have like an app, like you and I provide apps to our customers, right? So similar idea, a website where you go in, it does stuff for you. And you... You tend to start with a survey that where you describe like what kind of business you do, what kind of data you collect from your customers and from end users, that sort of thing. And that narrows down which criteria and controls and whatever apply to you. And then they will as much as possible, they try to automate checking on these things. So for example, if you use AWS and you have a cloud infrastructure, and also if your business deals with data in such a way that you need to have customer data encrypted at rest and encrypted in transit, they can integrate with your AWS account in like a metadata-only, read-only way, right? Principle of least privilege. So Mm -hmm. they can like read the configuration of your S3 buckets without uh, reading the contents of your S3 buckets, for example, so that you can say, okay, they can tell you, okay, well, you've got this S3 bucket that's not encrypted at rest and So that's out of compliance and you can either go in and say, okay, well, that bucket in particular is only used for our internal information and doesn't need to be encrypted. So it's out of scope or you can tell it that you're ready to remediate that and it will give you the steps like step by step with maybe screenshots in some cases or like a deep link for you to just click on. It'll take you to the right place in the console where you can change the encryption settings. It gives you a like a checklist of steps to, to do to solve that particular issue. So that times probably like a thousand and you <laughs> are ready to be evaluated for SOC 2 compliance. So yeah. So that's
0: intense. Yeah, I, we had yeah. to do some. Uh, we had to do SOC 2 stuff at work. And I mean, thankfully the head of security, we had a security department uh, and the head of it was the guy who was dealing with all that. And he would just pull people into the call at random times. He'd be like, hey, I need you for 15 minutes. We need to talk about GitHub access. And I'd go and mm-hmm. talk about GitHub access. And then I wouldn't hear from him for a day. And then he'd pull me back into a meeting. It's like, hey, we need to know about pull requests and how many eyes get to look at a pull request before it gets merged into a production branch. And uh, yeah, so I don't know the full breadth of what goes into SOC 2, but I know it was extremely laborious and uh, and quite intensive. So good luck. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Thanks. I'll have to ask you offline if you guys, if you could find out what vendor you guys used and what you thought of them. But.
0: Yeah, sure. I'll I'll take a look or I'll ask around.
1: <laughs> cool. Okay, so I guess that brings us to our topic for the day. I'm calling it the working code test because really there's this thing called the Joel test and it is amazingly 22 years old now or it will be in a couple of days as of the release of this episode. It was, I guess, first published on August 9th, 2000. And it's going to be August 3rd, 2022 when this episode comes out. So... That's a long dang time. And I think we should start by saying it's amazing that so much of this still holds up today. There's 12 like principles or criteria on here. And just through our initial look at it, I think we agree that a lot of it is totally still relevant.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It, I mean, I think it speaks a bit to what is so core to being productive at work and sort of helps separate the wheat from the chaff. Is that the phrase? Mm-hmm. Where, where the things that a lot of startup culture and a lot of trendiness has shine a light on things that people think are important that maybe just aren't really relevant to being productive. Sure.
1: So uh, I guess let me take yet another step back here. If you're not familiar, Joel Spolsky is a former Microsoft developer. He worked on Excel. And then later he went on to found his own company that made, among other things, Trello. So long before Trello, but after Microsoft, he was like tech blog famous, if you were around and nerdy at the time. And he created something that he called the Joel test, which was basically just a bunch of criteria that you could use to rate either like a company or like a software team to help decide whether or not you would want to work there. And he called it the Joel test. And so maybe, do you think we should just start by reading off what the 12 criteria are? And then we can come back and talk about them individually? Okay, cool. Because I'm sure as we get into each one of these, there's going to be some unpacking to do of like the original concept, and then we'll get into, would we keep it, would we revise it, et cetera. And then I think at the end, we'll probably have some we want to add on. Okay, so here's the original 12. Number one, do you use source control? Seems like pretty table stakes thing these days. Number two, can you make a build in one step? Number three, do you make daily builds? Number four, do you have a bug database? Number five, do you fix bugs before writing new code? Number six, do you have an up-to-date schedule? Seven, do you have a spec? Eight, do programmers have quiet working conditions? Nine, do you use the best tools money can buy? Ten, do you have testers? 11, do new candidates write code during their interview? And number 12, do you do hallway usability testing? Okay, so that was a lot. Let's, I guess, start back at number one. So do you use source control? I think, like I said, that's kind of table stakes these days. Yeah, I. It's definitely a red flag if you don't have it. I have to say, I have worked with a couple of companies that weren't, initially using source control like when i was a consultant we would be call- called in to do some work and it was already sold so we were doing the work one way or another so we dragged them into using source control and they once they saw its benefits they were like oh yeah this is awesome are there other things that we should be doing too and it kind of was nice to be able to bring them in a little bit more modern so like on the one hand i kind of want to say i wouldn't totally write somebody off if they weren't currently using source control as long as they were Willing to learn and move up, but it's definitely a red flag in terms of like how much work is going to be necessary. Like if you're not using source control, you probably are going to get a really bad score on this test.
0: (laughs) Yeah, like if that's the thing that you're not doing, then I have to imagine there's many other things here that you are also not
1: doing. Right, right. And actually, the thing that he wrote in the original article about this is like a score of 12 is perfect, right? So if you get yeses on all 12, that's perfect. 11 is tolerable, but 10 or lower, and you've got serious problems. So that's how he originally described it.
0: And I'll say that one of the huge benefits of source control isn't necessarily the historical control, which is obviously a killer feature. But Mm -hmm. one of the ways that I use source control daily is just being able to switch ideas. Mm. You have a feature branch, you're working on an idea, and then you get interrupted with other things or a different idea pops into your head or you're halfway down something and you realize it's going to actually be a lot more effort than you had anticipated. So you want to go back to your main thing and with source control, it's just really easy to experiment and switch ideas and quickly switch back to a clean working copy of the actual application without all the stuff you just spent the last four hours adding to it. And to me, that's the—that's like the main benefit. I mean, being able to go back in history and see who did what is very helpful, obviously, but those are more like the, I don't want to call them edge cases, but that's like the least Used feature of source control. For me, it's the branching and switching that I don't think I could live without it at this point.
1: Hmm. Yeah, I agree. What that made me think of is okay, so when he wrote this article, what version control systems do you think were in most popular use at the time? I have some like context I can add, but I want to see what you think, Ben.
0: I mean, I'm trying to think of it in terms of jobs that I was at. And I think t- so 20 years ago, 22 years ago, what well, this came out in 2000. 2000. So I actually didn't even. I hadn't started working yet. I was still in college. And uh, what's the one that has the tortoise? Subversion. Uh, Subversion. CVS or CVS CVS is different. So you're probably
1: thinking of Tortoise SVN, which is like a client. Yeah, 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 yeah.
0: yeah. Okay. So so that was the very first source control I had ever actually seen in person, and that was probably like in the mid 2000s.
1: Right. So Subversion itself, the very first, like before even an official release, they just called it Milestone One, was released on October 20th of 2000. So after the Joel test. So that tells me, I think, now I don't have the whole timeline of everything right in front of me, but I would guess that, I mean, definitely CVS was around, which was the precursor to Subversion. Just like Subversion became the precursor to Git in terms of like the vast majority or, or maybe a plurality of people are using such and such system. I think the biggest chunk was using CVS and then the biggest chunk was using Subversion and now the biggest chunk is using Git. Uh, So if it's not CVS, my guess would be Microsoft Visual SourceSafe VSS, which was Uh, technically version control. That one was a painful one to use. Did you ever have the uh, the
0: pleasure? I don't think so. No, I think I basically went from Subversion to Git. Those are the only two that I've ever dealt with. And if I can just say though, I mean, look at the, the, how, I mean, I don't know what the rest of the people, I don't know what like Microsoft and other massive companies were doing, but when we were looking into version control at the company that I was at, no one had heard of it. Or if they had heard of it, it was just theoretical. No one had ever really played with it at all. And for Joel to come out and say that these are table stakes, I mean, just how, again, I don't want to say it was ahead of his time because I don't know what the rest of the world was doing, but definitely, was uh, an early adopter, it feels like, of Mm -hmm. of something that ended up being super critical to any engineering team success.
1: Sure. Well, I mean, he worked on Excel. He was part of the office team. I don't know what he did before that, but operating systems and stuff had been around for a long time. I'm sure that these teams were all using like anything enterprise, like truly enterprise at that time was probably using CVS or something of that ilk. Okay. I think we've talked about source control enough. So can you make a build in one step? So what I've decided for this one was I would revise it a little bit. I think that a common theme that we're going to see throughout this discussion is that especially from Joel in the year 2000, he was very much, I think, in the headspace of somebody who's developing a binary executable that's going to be put on a CD and sold on a store shelf, right? Like Excel. And I have no idea what the ratio is of people that still do that kind of software. Like I have a buddy who is a video game developer. And so he's doing basically that same thing. But the proportion of people working on the internet and doing like web applications these days has absolutely exploded. So I I feel like that's going to be a major division between categories. And as far as I'm concerned, you guys are welcome to disagree with me. But as far as I'm concerned, this podcast is about web development. (laughs) Yep, Um, Yep. And so the way that I look at it is, can you deploy to production in a single action or step?
0: Yeah, I think that makes sense. the one step build doesn't connect with me. Right. Getting stuff to production makes sense. Yeah.
1: Then as I was writing that, I was kind of thinking like, that's true. Like I definitely have release automation like that, but at the same time, we have a bunch of like microservices as part of our application and so they can kind of be released separately and we don't often like develop changes to the monolith and a specific microservice in lockstep like occasionally it happens i guess but for the most part it's like hey okay, well here's a bug fix for the microservice or we might make a change to the microservice that's backwards compatible And then like to be able to support A or B workflow while we're still using A in the monolith and then come by once that's deployed and replace A with B in the monolith. So that, I guess that's kind of like a very rudimentary approach that you could consider like a feature flag sort of thing. But so I guess what I was getting at though is like, we can do production deploys for all of our things in one action, one step, but we don't always deploy everything at the same time, if that makes
0: sense. Yeah, and I think this actually ties into, you had an addition listed in the pre-show document here. Do you automate almost everything that can be automated? And I think that sort of ties into this. Is as much of your build and deployment process automated behind some sort of tooling, I think, is, right. is a critical step here. Word.
1: Okay, so the next one is, do you make daily builds? And what I wrote down for this one was I would revise it. Again, I think that the lens that we're looking at this test through has changed. and. Instead of like daily builds. So in his article, he goes into the detail, like what he means by this thing. Why is it important? And basically what I took away from that section is that every day around lunchtime, they run a build. And if somebody checked in code that broke the build, then that was like, okay, that's the next thing that anybody has to fix. That person has to fix that problem. And they are then in charge of babysitting the daily build until somebody else breaks it. And so for me, looking at this question through the lens of web development, what I'm thinking is continuous integration, right? Like we've talked about a couple of times recently, I'm checking in my work in progress code with its tests. right? right. And you're doing the same thing. And we're making sure that my work in progress code doesn't blow up your work in progress code before either of those gets promoted to production. And I think that's kind of the same thing. And I think that maybe the reason this is a little bit different, aside from the whole executable versus web thing, is that the cost of running these automated tests or builds, if that's what you want to call them, has gone down so dramatically, right? Like I think to build, to make a build of Excel probably was like a half hour or an hour long script that ran. And so you only did it once a day versus when we do a deploy for production, it could take five, 10 minutes tops. So it's something that's really easy to just jump on and do, you know, without... Any hesitation, and whenever you,
0: whenever you're checking a new code, right? We just kind of do it continuously, right? And I think this is again where his mode of working is just so different than what most of us are used to, where he's building a product that isn't shipping daily. It's they're working towards some sort of a, a master release that's tied to a mm. CD-ROM or like maybe it's co released with Windows or Microsoft Office, I guess would be more appropriate there. Whereas I think the mode that most of us are used to working in is you write code and you ship it to production and it's deployed. You're not coordinating that deployment across 15 different teams that are all working in lockstep to create some massive product. Most of us are independently, to some degree, working on a lot of different parts of the application. Maybe you're over here working in the admin, and someone else is over here working in billing, and someone else is over here working in the nightly data sync from the customers. And to your point earlier, sometimes that's just a Lambda function, and sometimes that's the main application, and sometimes it's uh, some SQL scripts that are being written. And a lot of us, even though we're working as part of a much larger organization, are working fairly independently and don't have this concept of one central build that has to always be in a perfect working state.
1: Uh, I co-sign. You want to take the next one?
0: Uh, sure. Do you have a bug database? And I think what a bug database is going to mean different things to different teams, because there's so many different technologies and software services that provide some sort of tracking. But ultimately what he was saying in his article is you can't leave it up to the minds of the developers. You can't have people just holding this backlog of information in their head. There has to be a recorded list of bugs in the application and people just have to be able to look those bugs up and not keep them inside of their head. And I a hundred percent agree. I think this is absolutely critical.
1: Oh Yeah. Total table stakes, hard cosine. And I think he goes into, in the article, he goes into some detail about some of the things that should be in that bug database, right? Like the description of the problem, the context needed to reproduce it, any like stack traces that might be available, that sort of thing.
0: So, yeah. Yeah, at work we actually have, our support team, thankfully, they're the ones who enter a lot of the bugs into our bug system, and they actually have a support ticket template that they use that outlines all of the key pieces of information that you need to have in order to work the bug. And that's been hugely helpful because they really put a lot of screenshots and steps to reproduce and what browsers are being used and what kind of plan the user is on. And all of that really just makes the the debugging and the subsequent fix so much easier to create.
1: Yep. Again, easy, hard agree there. So here's one where I think that at least what we wrote down, we disagree, or at least maybe sort of partially disagree. So let's dig into that. Do you fix bugs before writing new code?
0: So I put this down as a revise, and I think maybe this ties into what I was saying earlier, where we have people who work in fairly independent and decoupled parts of the application. So Mm -hmm if there's Joe is over here working in the admin and Sally is over here working in the billing module, I don't think there's anything where Sally should have to worry about admin bugs before she starts updating billing features. Because those two, while they're part of the same macro product, they're fairly decoupled and fairly independent. I don't think that there should be some sort of overarching sense that we need to have a constant, like, No bugs in the backlog before any of us can do any work. That said, if you're working on a particular area of the application and you built something and it's buggy and then you want to go to continue to work on that part of the application, I would say that you should probably focus on the bugs you created before you start adding new stuff.
1: Okay, I think we probably agree more than we disagree. So again, when I went back and reread that section of his article about this whole thing, what it came down to for him at the time was, I guess he related a story about being on the Microsoft Excel team and how the project managers at the time were like dead set on the schedule. We have a schedule, we're going to stick to it, you're going to meet your deadlines, etc. And so like, for example, just to try and meet the deadlines, the it could be apocryphal, but the story he related was that somebody was assigned the task of writing a function that returns the height of a row in Excel. <laughs> and do you know where this is going?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Okay, yeah. And so because he needed to meet the schedule and he could, he could deal with it as a bug later, he just wrote return 12. And so, okay, now I've met the schedule and we'll, <laughs> I'll deal with the real implementation when I get the bug for it when, because it doesn't work in every situation.
0: I mean, to be fair, that's sort of test-driven development in a nutshell right there, right? Where you're doing the simplest thing you can to write the feature and then only coming back to change it when the test turns red. I mean,
1: it's the first like step or two of yeah. TDD, <laughs> but yeah, it's not the full process, that's for sure.
0: I'm just I'm just having
1: a good time. Yeah, yeah, I get you. So, I again, I took I think maybe the reason that my gut kind of disagrees with this one is because maybe like my team or or me personally I don't pass it which doesn't make me feel good sometimes it's like there's just bugs that are not worth fixing right like for example I had a conversation with my team today we have our own support ticket table and we have like a support ticket UI built into our product to make it easy to integrate docs and on-call notifications for certain severity tickets, that sort of thing. And somehow we managed to get this far We're like 10 years into this product's life. We managed to get this far without a a date, time stamp on the table of when the ticket was closed. We have like audit trails, like we have a date time created and we have audit logs of like every action that happened to that ticket, including closing it. But that's in another table. And it's not just like a timestamp column you can grab right there next to date time created and it, like that's a bug right we should fix that it's a, it's not a bug that causes us any you know broken functionality but it certainly is not the way it should be and it's just not one of those things like we agree it would be easy to add the column it would be easy to backfill all the existing data but it's just not something that's worth spending our time on right now because it's not causing yeah. any problems for anybody really like even doing some <laughs> reporting on our support tickets and finding out like the mean time to close or whatever that's just, there's not even a performance hit that's noticeable when you're trying to query that data out. So it's like, yeah, it's I guess it's not right. It's not how we would design the system if we were omnipotent, but it's not worth working on right now. And to be fair, there's probably plenty of bugs that are actual bugs that we just haven't gotten around to yet because of other things like deadlines and other stuff taking priorities.
0: Well, and again, I think... Not to pick on what kind of work Joel used to do, but I think just to say that different working environments have different constraints. So if you're working to build a product that gets released on a CD or it gets released quarterly, you're really trying to hit a particular deadline that has a a fixed set of features and a fixed expectations. But a lot of us who are working in web development where we're deploying every day, the, one of the benefits of being able to deploy every day and give new features and functionality to the customers every day is that we have a very tight feedback loop. So we will mm-hmm. often get feedback from customers that affects what we're gonna work on next, which we maybe didn't know. We, we didn't understand the importance of something until we built it. And then once we built it, we understand how to iterate or not iterate on it, and you can make those decisions. So even if you have bugs in the application, you have to weigh the cost of working on that bug versus the opportunity cost of not working on something else. And again, just if you have a product that gets released quarterly, you don't necessarily have that type of feedback. So you're very focused on a long-term plan, but a lot of us are focused on much shorter-term plans and that allows us to be more agile, which allows us to be more, I don't know, maybe open-minded. I don't know what the right word is, but we're definitely, I think a lot of us have grown the muscle that allows us to live with more bugs for better or worse, because we're doing other things that also have importance.
1: Right. No, I think you said it well. Opportunity cost plays a huge role, but I think that everybody would agree that the function that just returns 12 should be fixed before you start working <laughs> on the, the one that returns the column width, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Agreed. Cool. So, next one Do you have an up to date
0: schedule? Oh, interesting. We disagree on this one too. I think this one ties into kind of what I was just saying, where if you're working towards quarterly release of a CD-ROM, you're acting under very different constraints than we have a backlog of 300 feature ideas, and we want to see which ones connect with customers and which ones will help drive revenue. and. We're doing experiments with A-B testing and feature flags, and we're seeing what people respond to. I mean, that's just a very different world, and it's a very different mindset. So for me, I think it's important to have people at the company who have a long-term, big-picture vision of where you want the company and the product and the platform to go. But you also have to have a lot of people who are very flexible and not going to enter a death march towards a feature as new evidence is starting to show up daily as you're getting customers to interact with the product and provide feedback.
1: Okay. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess for me, my gut reaction to this one was more, that's just not how we do it anymore. The When I think of a schedule, I think of like a Gantt chart. And I know there's other yeah. ways to schedule too, but I, for me, in, again, in our business, in our industry... I think it's much more common to have a roadmap and say like, these are the things that we're working on. This is what's coming up next. And there's sort of an understanding that to some degree, things are going to take a variable amount of time that can be unpredictable. So I feel like a roadmap is a slightly different vehicle for the same goal. Although there are plenty of times too, where there's some trade show or some reason that you have to have certain features done and uh, at least done enough to be able to show them off, right? So that you can go on a yeah. sales roadshow or whatever,
0: so. Well, a lot of what we did at work and especially in the earlier days was what we sort of joked about as being marketing-driven development where the marketing team wanted to release something and they had a particular date and that date corresponded with blog posts and press releases and paid advertising And so the development team had to hit those dates because that marketing campaign was going out and we had to either get everything done or we had to start, I hate to say, but we had to start cutting corners in order to make sure that we hit those dates. And let's just say less than stellar code was sometimes involved in that corner cutting process. Always, (laughs) Uh, I'll say I have talked about the base camp people, formerly 37 Signals several times on the show, I'm very enamored with their whole mindset to product development and to business. And one of the things that they talk about, which I'm just fascinated by, is this idea of appetite. And essentially, they work in these six-week increments where they have an idea for something that they want to build or something they want to prove. And they essentially give themselves six weeks to do that thing or to do some portion, some fixed portion of that thing. And they hit that mark. And if they think they're not going to hit that mark, what they do is they start to pare back what they're going to be building in order to hit that mark. So they almost work on these like mini roadmaps. It's very fascinating to me, but um, I'm not explaining it well, but they have hard deadlines and I think it works really well for them.
1: Yeah, I mean, I've read a little bit of their stuff. I'm not. I I don't mean to disparage you at all in saying this, but I'm. I don't think I'm as much of a 37 Signals fanboy as you are. And I hope you would agree with that statement. Like that you are a little bit of a fanboy, and that not that there's anything wrong with
0: that. Anyway, okay. Let's just move on. Do you have a spec? So uh, I'll jump in here and just say that the the moment a specification is written, it's out of date. That there's no one can keep specs up to date with the living breathing dynamic nature of a working piece of software and as as much as it would be great to have things documented it just i've never seen it done well and maybe that's just a reflection of the companies that i've worked on I've just never seen it done well, and I've never seen it kept up to date. Yeah, I would agree. I
1: think that, again, this is going to go back to an executable on a CD-ROM versus a web app that's going to change and be totally, n- not totally different, but you know, it's going to grow week to week, whereas your CD-ROM is you get what you get. And maybe in the last 10 years, they started doing updates over the internet or whatever. But it, I, it's funny because like, I see the value in the specifying exercise, because If you're good at it, you can see potential pitfalls and incompatibilities during that exercise, and it's much easier to go back and rewrite that portion of the specification than it potentially could be to go back and rewrite that chunk of the code. You've probably, I know I've probably, I know I certainly have had the experience of writing a chunk of code and then realizing like it's gonna, <laughs> it, it doesn't match up. That We were trying to dig a tunnel from both ends and we're not going to meet in the middle. And so I have to like go back a good ways and change directions. And I think the people who are good at writing a spec can prevent that and do it in a very efficient manner. But at, again, we've talked about my company, in particular, a bunch of times on the show, we're a very lean team. We have a total of five people. None of us is a right. dedicated technical writer or anything like that. We are basically three and a half full-time programmers, a support guy, and a CEO, and um, so nobody has time to sit down and write a spec. That said, I have tried to like kind of sit down and write technical documents occasionally, like a, a plan for a thing to just get input from my team, but that's only. Like when I can see something coming really far away, like I can see, okay, this particular service is going to need to be rewritten for X, Y, Z reasons. Here are the lessons we learned from the current implementation. Here are the things that we need to do better next time. Here are some nascent thoughts on how we can accomplish these goals and how I might go about it. And then just kind of throw that out to the team and say like, look, we're planning on starting this. I'll probably start working on this in two weeks. So if you have any ideas or comments that you can kind of percolate into this document in the meantime, that would be great. But that's about as far as we go with a spec. Eh, I mean, for anything significant. Sometimes there's like, you'll get a ticket and the ticket serves as a spec, right? Like a support ticket for a bug. That's a spec for exactly what's wrong and how to fix it. But yeah, like our applications just evolve constantly and there's no way we could keep a spec up to date. Yeah, 100%.
0: So I definitely agree with you that the act of writing the specification can be very powerful and it can certainly help you as an engineer or as a product head think more effectively about what it is that you want to do. Envision, obviously, our mainstay, our bread and butter, has historically been building prototypes. And I've, from time to time, said that prototypes are worthless, but building a prototype is priceless. And in that, what I mean Mm. is the act of building the prototype forces you to think, but once the prototype is done, it's almost something akin to the strong opinions loosely held. Like, just because it's in the prototype, if you start to build out the application and something isn't right, or the usability doesn't feel right, or there's technical things that come to light that no longer make sense with the prototype, like, change it. Don't feel like you're married to the prototype. The prototype was a starting point. It was a level of abstraction and a facilitation of thought. But once you're past it, don't be married to it. Just keep going. Get more high fidelity. Get more evidence as you build the application. And I guess you could... I don't know how good this would be. Maybe this would be a terrible way to think of a spec... But you could think of a spec in some ways like that. The spec helps you think about what you want to build. But once you start the build, and if you run into roadblocks or you run into things that don't work the way you thought they were going to do, thought they were going to work, like that's fine. That's the reality of the situation. So you change the way that you're coding. The Whether you go back and update the spec, maybe that's a little bit more where I diverge. I probably wouldn't go back and update the spec because to me, the spec... I, like, again, I just think they're always out of date. They're there they're, they're to not be trusted.
1: Yeah. As you're talking about all this, I couldn't help but think of like the Apollo mission software, right? There's that famous picture. Oh, I wish I could remember her name. The woman that was like shorter than the stack of all the printed out code yes, that she wrote. Yes, yes. And, and like, absolutely for something like that, right? There's no second chance, right? There's no, you can't uh, send it over there, update to the Apollo capsule halfway to the moon. So I think situationally, a spec can be really important. But if you have that opportunity to update the software continuously, then, yeah, maybe a spec is a little bit outmoded.
0: Yo, I have to say, you guys were telling, I think this was, I think we had discussed this on the show or in the after show or pre-show. We were talking about the M1 chips for Apple and Mm -hmm. mechanical engineering has always kind of sat in my head as this, as this. A whole different level of art form when it comes to building that there's so much more i don't want to call science or like real engineering but it, it feels very different to me than software because of this you have to get it right and there's so much low level atomic action of how things are working but then we were talking about the m1 chip and i think i was saying that i read this article that the m1 pro and like the m1 are actually the same physical chip it's just that some parts of it are turned off because it's less expensive to build the same chip and then just artificially limit it I think yeah yeah and then i think one of you guys was saying that they build chips and just a lot of the transistors don't work after the chip's been built and they just have to test it and say like oh this number of the transistors are working so it's like the really good chip or like like a certain number of the transistors are broken so it's the less expensive chip and, um, yep, that was me. Forgive me if I'm misunderstanding or miss. Yeah. And so like, that sort of just paints that whole thing in a different light for me. Whereas previously creating a chip with a trillion transistors on it, it's numbers that my brain can't even wrap around because of the microscopic nature of it. And you're telling me that, yeah, a lot of these things are just broken. And that's how we deal with it (laughs) by changing the pricing model. (laughs) You're like, oh, okay. It's not this like super exact wizard science that I thought it was. I mean, obviously it, it is to some degree, but it's not it's we're all living in the constraints of a physical world and we're all just humans. And I don't know. I found that very comforting in a weird yeah. way. Well, it, I mean,
1: we're pretty, pretty deep down a rabbit trail here, but um, yeah. <laughs> in, in like machining, right. So if you're making a piston for an engine or something, right. So they tell you it needs to be of an inch wide or whatever it's going to be, but they give you a tolerance, right. So you need to, it needs to be thousandths mm. wide plus or minus 2000. Yeah. And so like, There's it's that wiggle room, and I think that's what's being put to use for like the transistor situation you were describing.
0: Yeah, hundred percent.
1: Okay, so let's uh, let's move on to the next one. Do programmers have quiet working conditions? And I think this is an easy keep, right? I think it's been proven pretty well that quiet working conditions are beneficial to. Creative thought and to programming in particular. That said, I personally am nine times out of 10, or let's say 25 days out of the month, something like that, quite happy to put on music that is way too loud in my headphones and So in that situation, like I'm able to get my desired working conditions, even in an office, sometimes you just need that quiet. And it's nice to, like in in the article, he talks about giving developers private offices with doors so that you can shut the door and just have whatever noise is going on down the hall blocked out.
0: Yeah, I 100% agree. Having a quiet working environment, I can't imagine working in a non-quiet working environment. I actually don't even understand how people can go to coffee shops and work in a coffee shop. That idea of not having my own chair and my own desk and an external monitor and being with people who are talking, I, it's so foreign to me. I can't mm. even wrap my head around how they do anything. That's interesting.
1: So it's like so multifaceted here. So I was going to say, I was going to kind of come back to this one and say, maybe this is the place where we have a discussion about being able to work remotely. In terms of at home instead of in an office, but at the same time, I've been working remote for a little more than 10 years now. And what I remember when I first started working remotely, I was like six months, eight months, something like that. I was working from home and that it was going fine, but I was starting to get some cabin fever then. And I found myself like maybe three or four days a week going out and working in a coffee shop for the first half of the day or something like that to just shake things up and feel normal. And I don't know if it's because the context of my work has changed, right? At that time, we were doing like partial consulting, partial working on products, and we were, it was still just the two of us. And the difference between then and now is we have a specific set of products. We don't do any consulting, and the pressure to get stuff done is so much higher. We just have such a backlog that, like, they thought of trying to get work done out in a coffee shop or Panera or wherever is going to, it's just, I can already tell you, I'm not going to be as productive out there as I would be at home. And I don't think it has anything to do with the noise. I think you're right. It's like a comfortable chair. I know I've got my steady supply of Mountain Dew and I don't have to go break out the credit card every 15 minutes when I need another one. And just little things like that.
0: And as someone who drinks a tremendous amount of fluid during the day, which leads to a tremendous amount of urination. I don't even know how I would do that. I mean, I can't leave my laptop on a public coffee table while I'm in the bathroom. Yeah. So I'd have to, I mean, I don't know what people do. Maybe they do that and they just lock it. So it. even if it were stolen, it can't be used. But I don't know. It, it would just be too stressful.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it is very stressful. There's been a couple of times I remember like kind of, making a little bit of a friend while I was out at whatever coffee shop or restaurant. And we were both like working from there. I'd be like, okay, look, when you got to go to the bathroom, I'll watch your stuff. When I go, you watch my stuff sort of thing. But that wasn't always available. And sometimes you're right. It's like, you got to, all right, I'm going to have to make this one quick, lock my machine, pray my stuff doesn't walk away and just go. Cause you're right. You can't, you don't, you want to pack up all your stuff and take it into the bathroom and then come back and find like the one seat that had an electrical outlet next to it is now being taken up by mom's club of like, you know, 12 (laughs) ladies hanging out and none of them is using the electrical outlet, but they're taking your table. Like, come on now.
0: Yeah. And then one thing that would be helpful being in a crowded environment would be to have noise canceling headphones. But as someone who has had noise canceling headphones, I actually find them a little bit disturbing is not the right word, but I don't like feeling so disconnected from my environment and part of it is working from home and part of it is I have to know what's happening with the dog and if I'm out and about I don't want to step out into the street and not hear an oncoming car but I have I have stopped using the noise canceling feature of my headphones because it feels I feel too disconnected from my surroundings and I don't know if that would be I don't know if sitting in a coffee shop, right? I'm not about to step out into a busy street. I don't have to worry about the dog. So maybe it would be different in that kind of a situation, but I don't know if that's something that it connects with anybody else. Cause I know noise canceling headphones are obviously a big deal. So, but I have tried and lost my taste for them.
1: Hmm. Yeah. I mean, there, they are definitely situations where they're amazing. Like having them on a plane when you're trying to watch a movie or even if you're trying yeah, to work
0: hundred percent, but
1: I agree. Like they can be dangerous too trying to cross the street in the middle of a city or yeah so but you know what i don't think i've ever had a pair of head noise canceling headphones that didn't come with a way to turn that feature off either yeah that's great just got to be vigilant of it okay so do you use the best tools money can buy i forget what number we're on i don't have i'm I'm looking at a spreadsheet so they're not in the (laughs) here i'll come back they are it's number nine do you use the best tools money can buy and you had a funny response to this, so I'll let you go first.
0: I said, as long as I can still use Sublime Text, the joke there is that best tools for the job is somewhat personal. I guess the best tool is the thing that makes you the most productive, not necessarily—I don't know what the opposite of that is—not necessarily like the industry darling. So that's why I think the underlying thing here is: is there friction that your developers are feeling that they don't have to? And I think that's the key: is that Instead of the best tools, it's how are you making your developers the happiest?
1: Yeah. Happiest and most productive, right? Like, so if you can buy them that M1 Pro and cut their compile time down from 15 seconds to one second, or if getting a second monitor means that they can be more productive, then like, those are easy things to spend money on that are going to have long-term benefits
0: yeah yeah, i'll tell you so docker for mac we use docker at work for local development and docker for mac a couple like a month ago released some update that used some experimental file system integration Uh, because so Hmm. the way development happens with docker is you mount volumes so you have the code on your computer and then you spin up a docker container and then you mount your code into the container and it does the synchronization so it's essentially copying your code on an ongoing basis into the docker container and that Mm -hmm. for reasons that i don't understand is extremely slow relatively speaking and they released some update a little while back where it's some new experimental file syncing protocol but you had to upgrade to the latest mac operating system in order to take advantage of it and i finally set aside some time to do that and it literally cut my build times like in half and my application boot up time in half just because it was reducing some of the file IO overhead between the Docker container and the host operating system. So it's weird, like little things like that. You don't even realize how much of a difference they're going to make until you see it in action. You're like, whoa, that's awesome.
1: Yeah. (laughs) cool number 10 do you have testers i wrote revise and you said you don't you're not sure how you feel about this so his explanation for it in the article was basically to to give some rough generalizations you are paying your programmers 100 dollars an hour and testers would cost you 30 dollars an hour so don't make your programmers spend their time manually testing things and i think the mathematics of that check out but i think that the testing tools and methodologies and the collective knowledge of testing has come so far since then that it makes more sense to automate away those people <laughs> entirely, uh, take their jobs <laughs> and disrupt them. Again, that goes back to the one that you mentioned earlier that I have on my additions list of just automating everything that can be. If you can write an automated test that will complete a dedicated person's daily work in Five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes? Like, why wouldn't you do that? So yeah, just so I kind of feel like it, it makes more sense to lean on automated testing than testing staff. But at the same time, like if you don't have the automated testing, then sure, it makes sense to to maybe hire some people on a temporary basis until you get those automated tests. So I'm conflicted
0: about this one because on the one hand, I do believe that having dedicated testers increases the overall quality of the software that you're building. But
1: as long as they're like good at their jobs, right? Like, have you ever had a tester that is like, it gives you a failure, but it's like all of the human testers I've ever worked with, you have to provide them like a script, right? So click on this, type this in the box, hit this button, that sort of thing. And it's a, maybe it's a 12 step process. And the assertion that you're making is on step 12, but it fails at step three And so they fail your test and you're like, well, but that's not the broken thing. You're failing the wrong thing. There's some other test that should have this covered that you just did out of order or something. And
0: right, right. Well, so here's my flip side to the coin is if I could draw a parallel to pull request reviews, PRs, I think that the person writing the code, it's their responsibility to make sure that the code they're writing is successful. The person reviewing the pull request, their job is not to ensure the success of the code. It's, if anything, to provide a sanity check, to double check that things are being done in a roughly intelligent way. But if a bug gets through or a suboptimal approach gets through, that's not the fault of the person reviewing the code, in my opinion. It's the person who wrote the code. They're the ones ultimately responsible. And when it comes to bugs and testing, I follow the same sort of mentality that the person writing the code, it's ultimately their responsibility to make sure that the code behaves the way it's intended and expected to behave. And if you have testers, that's a nice to have, but I wouldn't want to use testers as a gatekeeper to code getting to production. We've talked about the Carol over at, what's her company, Silvermine, I think, something like that. No, uh, she's
1: at Clear Capital now.
0: Clear Capital, thank you. They have a very strict workflow where it has to go through QA before things can go to production. At least that's my, what I've heard her say. And I, I have trouble imagining being in that world. That feels like it, it just feels odd to me. It's mm-hmm. not what I'm used to. And if the do you have testers, Joel test here, says it can't go to production until it's past QA. Like, I don't think I could live in that world. Hmm.
1: It's definitely a very different world. I think you and I are both far from enterprise. I don't know if you've ever had the pleasure yeah. of working in enterprise software situation. I unfortunately have. And it did not jive well with my personality either for similar reasons. Yeah,
0: it's tough. And I think even Carol has admitted this, that she believes whether or not she can point to evidence of this but she gets the sense that when you have a team of testers that have to approve code before it goes to production you get sloppier as an engineer because Hmm. you're just not as worried about it
1: right interesting i don't remember her saying that but that's a very interesting theory
0: yeah so i'm very conflicted about it
1: okay So I mean, if we are rebranding the Joel test, you know, we're making the working code test here. How do we? How would this land for us? I think for me, what I would repurpose this particular rule is like: Do you require an extensive test suite? Not necessarily exhaustive, but like, I would want to have like a policy that says like all mission critical critical path processes have to have almost like a a tedious and bordering on too many automated (laughs) tests, right? Like the things that like. If it broke, if you would want to be woken up in the middle of the night to go fix it, that's the type of thing that you should have automated tests for so that it doesn't break in the middle of the night.
0: I'll buy that. I'm not a huge automated tester, but I like what (laughs) you're saying. (laughs) (laughs) News to me. Let me draw one more thing here. And just because everybody has a different mindset and things are important to different people in different ways. So Going back to this idea that having testers can make developers sloppy, it's a little bit to me when I hear people on various podcasts say that, oh, if you just use Prettier or Standard or something to that effect, then you don't have to worry about formatting your code. Like, I'll just write garbage code on the screen, and I hit Command-S, and the tool auto-formats the code for me. And I'm always like, wait, what? You're not thinking about the formatting of your code? Like, how do you do that? How do you not... But it'd be like writing prose without worrying about punctuation. Like you, as someone who <laughs> thinks about writing, like it wouldn't make sense. Like that's not a gesture that makes sense. Like it's mathematically impossible. And, and so that's why I get a little weary of having too much of a, of a safety net of a QA team. Cause it's like you just start to, it's like you turn off parts of your brain. And I don't mean like you're getting dumber. I just mean like. It's like you're turning off parts of the algorithm that always used to be there. And I get very nervous about that.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, again, no surprise to hear that you have concerns about linting for <laughs> I But it's funny because I used to have that exact same opinion. When I first saw and heard people talking about prettier, I was like, why? But I can just do that by hand. But I, and I can't explain how I
0: came to change. It's not even that you can do it by hand. It's like my mindset is that I can't not do it. It's not like I'm opting in. It's that in order to do it, I'd have to start opting out of that mentality. And I don't know how to, that feels more unnatural to me than worrying about formatting. Let me draw an even crazier analogy. So I have a big fear of physical violence. Like I have a big fear of getting attacked by random people. And so over the years, I always, I play this game with myself where I see people do stuff that doesn't make sense to me. And I think to myself, If what they're doing doesn't make sense, like where on the scale of how likely they are to become violent because their view of the world is so different than mine. And it's like super ridiculous things like you get into an elevator and then someone else gets into the elevator and you're in a closed space and they start whistling and you're like, whoa, (laughs) that's crazy. (laughs) And you're like, if you're willing to get into an elevator with someone else that you don't know and just start whistling, like how likely are you to then become violent because your view of the world is so skewed? And obviously that's like a nonsensical jump, but like it's a nuanced scale. Like what if they have sunglasses? Right, yeah, like you're (laughs) inside and you have sunglasses on? Come on, man, like I'm like moments away from being attacked. But so when I think about people who don't think about the formatting of their code while they're writing it, I'm like, what else What else are you not thinking about? Like what else in the world of software development it's not important to you in a way that it is important to me. And like, how does that actually affect our ability to work together? So Hmm. some of that linting is like a, I don't want to say red flag because that's like, that's too, that's not really, it's not that extreme, but it's a, it's just like a moment where you're like, oh, this person sees the world in a way that is different than I see the world. And is that going to become a point of friction for us? And it's a question mark. So I forget how we got onto this. (laughs) Doesn't matter. (laughs) It was do you have testers? (laughs) 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 So
1: okay, final thought. I am a. I am pro linter, pro formatters, like prettier. (laughs) I still. Uh, stop myself in most cases from adding a semicolon at the end of my lines of JavaScript. I've always been a semicolon user, and that said, sometimes I've got I'm balancing too many things in my head, and I forget a semicolon. And it's nice to know that when I hit save, the formatter is going to add it for
0: me. Yeah, so, I'm not going to fight against that. Yeah, and there
1: are little things like that. If I don't, again, if I'm focused on something different in that exact keystroke moment, I might not follow my own spacing rules about a space inside a curly bracket or something like that. And it's nice to know that it'll catch me and and fix that for me. Anyway, let's move on. Because we've only got two more left and then we got to talk about our additions here. So number 11, do new candidates write code during their interview? I think this one should be pretty easy for us, right?
0: I also, I'll say keep, but with the caveat that I've never actually been in an interview or given an interview where someone has coded. (laughs) So I love it as an idea, but I've never actually seen it in practice. How many jobs have you interviewed for, Ben? Let me, maybe let me clarify. I've never been in an interview where someone has coded during the initial interview, but I have been and given interviews where there is a take-home portion, so to speak. Okay. Where someone has to do like a build out something or provide some sort of a sample. So I guess, I don't know if that counts. But yes, I think seeing someone's code is very important to understanding how they're going to work.
1: Right. Yeah, it's funny because it's a whole thing, right? Like there's like gotcha tests and there's like ridiculous trivia that is like, it's obvious once you answer. And I think that those are, are bad things to do in interviews. But at the same time, like forcing somebody to code while you're standing over their shoulder watching them in some ways can be equally as bad, right? Like, that's not yeah. how you're going to work every day, right? You're not going to be self-conscious about what you're Googling during your work day. I mean, as long as you're Googling work-related stuff, but to are you going to be embarrassed that you have to look up the docs to array.splice in an interview, right? So personally, I might be embarrassed about having to look that up during the middle of an interview, but I certainly have no qualms about looking it up during the middle of my workday, right? Yeah, 100%. So I think that a take-home test or take home coding assignment makes a lot of sense. I I understand why there might be some concerns about that. People could be getting help from other people or whatever, and that would suck. But yeah, I don't know what the solution is to that problem. But I agree. Seeing somebody's coding style, seeing how they would solve certain problems is
0: crucial. I was listening to an interview. I think I brought this up on the show before actually. And actually we did a whole episode about interviewing and I may have brought it up in there, but I'll I find it so fascinating as a point of view, so I just want to bring it up one more time. I can't remember who it was or where I heard it. It was on a podcast interview, I'm pretty much pretty sure. This guy was saying that as an industry, we've basically fooled ourselves into thinking that we can glean any information about a candidate from an interview or even from a set of code samples that is basically like a useless ceremony that we have. And his take on it, and I don't remember exactly the details here, but his take was you just have to literally pay people to do work. And then see what they produce. And that's really the only way that you'll understand whether or not they're going to be a long term fit for the company. So his take on it was you have an initial interview. I think just get a rough sense of whether or not this person is going to make it or not make it. And then you give them a contract of some sort, like a month or three months, and then like use that as the interview, so to speak, which I don't know how feasible that is, but I think there's a lot of meat in there, but I don't know how scalable that is. And for every company,
1: yeah. No, I think you you said that pretty well. I agree. Like the only way to see how somebody is going to work is to put them to work. And there are, that's what the interview process is trying to do is to figure that out. But yeah, and also that could be, it's going to be a lot easier for someone like Microsoft to pull off than it is for my five person company, right? Can't just hire
0: yeah, absolutely.
1: all five applicants to a job that made it past the initial interviews and see how they do. So, okay, Well then, let's move on to Joel's number 12 here. Do you do hallway usability testing? So I guess maybe this bears a a little bit of explanation. So basically what he describes as hallway usability testing is you get to a point where you have like some UI or something you need tested and you just grab the next person that walks by down the hall and you say, okay, here's what I need you to do with this software I've been working on. Go do it. And you watch over their shoulder. That's what usability testing is. And you just, the hallway part is you grab the people that walk by And his theory is that if you do this to five people, then you'll learn like 95% of what there is to learn about the usability problems in your code. So
0: what do you think, Ben? I mean, I'm a little biased here. Envision as a company is essentially founded on this idea of getting people to try stuff and get their feedback. So I'm full-throated yes on this usability stuff. And I'd even go so far as to say beyond prototyping. We've talked extensively about feature flags on this show and iterative development. And I am so heavily into the camp of just get something on the screen and let the user start to play with it and then just see what happens and use that to help formulate the path forward. So I'd say I almost like go beyond what I think Joel was intending to imply in this. And and Hmm. I just love getting feedback early and often. And what there's, I forget who said this. Someone said something to the effect of, if you're not embarrassed by the product that you're deploying, then you've waited too long to deploy it. There's some something mm. along that line. There's somebody said, somebody famous said something along those lines. <laughs> right. And and I'm, as I've gotten older, I've started to embrace that more and more. That, that get it out there, get feedback, get people using it and, and then move forward. Oh yeah, for sure. Done is way better than perfect. Ah, every day.
1: Cool. Okay. Oh, well, I mean, I agree. It's funny because like, My team, my company is 100% remote. So there is no hallway for anybody to be walking by. But we do pretty, (laughs) like we have a a daily meeting as a team. And one of the things that will come up is like, okay, I just finished this thing and I want to get you guys to mess with it and tell me what you think of the UI or stuff like that. Just basically, it's become such a common thing that we don't even talk about it anymore. It's just like, I'm working on this. You can test it here for me. Let me know what you think. And that's all the input that they get. And then I get some notes back or I get some, it looks good, but yeah. yeah. Cool. Okay. Well, how do you want to handle additions? It looks like I have a couple more on my list than you do, but maybe you've come up with some since then. Do you want to go back and forth or? Yeah,
0: let's go back and forth.
1: Okay. Well, I'll start. So you and I, have some things in common, Ben. We are both the middle-aged white men, cisgendered <laughs> white men, as far as I know, and and straight too. So anyway, the point is, the thing that I would add here is do you have any women or minorities on the team? And I guess the point for me is I, I need to put my foot down, right? Like I've been on teams of a bunch of white dudes too many times. And if I don't do my part to make space for underrepresented people, then I, I don't feel like I'm being true to myself anymore, certainly have grown a lot and learned a lot over the last 10 years. And for me, this is one of the ways that I want to implement what I've learned. And I think, honestly, if I'm yeah. being if I'm being truthful about where this comes from, I saw a pretty well-known developer, I don't want to name names and whatever, bring people up, but pretty well-known developer post on Twitter, this was years ago, that he would no longer be participating in any panel discussions that didn't include women or minorities. And he's a straight, cis, white, middle-aged male. And I, that really clicked with me. I was like, yes, that is the perfect attitude to have. And so I want to integrate that on all of my teams going forward.
0: Yeah, I think that's really wonderful. And it's something that I think about, but I'm probably not in touch with it as much as I'd like to be. And it's not just we keep here it's not just about doing the right thing. It's that there's a material benefit to having oh, yeah. diverse teams. It's it's not just trying to help other people. It's helping the product and it's helping the customers. For sure. Well said. All right, I'll go. I have one. So as you can tell from this discussion and many discussions before, I have feelings about software and those feelings tend to be pretty strong. And uh, so for me, it's important to have an understanding of how much independence engineers get. Even just earlier in this conversation, I mentioned that the idea of having a QA team be a blocker, like a hard gatekeeper to having code reach production feels so foreign to me. And so I would need to be in a world where engineers can be independent actors as much as possible. Within limits, we don't want people going crazy. And with things like uh, the SOC 2 compliance that we talked about (laughs) earlier, there has to be limits for security reasons. But I need to be in a place where engineers have a seat at the table. That it doesn't go from like designers to product leads and then like to low-level engineers who are basically just clock punchers like i could never be a clock puncher so i I would need to know that i have some independence and some freedom of will and and thought to get stuff done and to work with customers and stuff to that effect
1: so when you're coloring you want a description of what should be on the page but you don't want to have lines to color inside
0: yes yeah exactly bring me the set of markers don't bring me the book of outlines word
1: Okay, so I'll go again. Do you include accessibility concerns in testing and in code reviews? Again, this is another one of those things that's like, I just took for granted. I took my privilege for granted for so much of my career. And now that I know better, I want to do better. And accessibility is a really important thing, especially even for me personally. As I'm starting to get older, my my eyesight is not as good as it used to be. And so that's become an obvious thing for me where I start to recognize like, oh, font size is really small here or the contrast (laughs) isn't isn't as good here. And it's like, oh, okay, yeah, all those people have been talking about all this stuff for so long. Like, well, maybe they know what they're talking about. So again, I just want to put that best foot forward.
0: And again, going back to the idea of having a diverse team where it's not just about the team, it's about everything. Accessibility is the same thing. It doesn't just make something more accessible for some people. By making it accessible for some people, you actually make it more accessible for everybody.
1: Yeah. Oh, man. So sorry, another rabbit trail here. You and I, Ben, (laughs) have talked on this podcast not that long ago about how the tabs versus spaces argument is an accessibility (laughs) argument. And I think deep down, I already agreed with that statement, but I had never really put it into those words in my head. And when you said it's an accessibility issue, it just like crystallized for me perfectly. And I had, I came across a tweet not long ago by the creator of Svelte, Rich Harris, where he was, I think, uh, linking to a comment on a GitHub issue on some random repository that basically the the commenter was, and probably still is, blind um, and uses a Braille display. And I think, oh, that's what it was. So it, in future, like a, a request for a future version of Prettier was to switch Switch the default from spaces to tabs, and his reasoning, I guess, for the request, was that on a Braille display, a tab can be a single character, whereas a space is a single character. So if you have a tab width of four, then you have one tab, or you have four spaces, right? So those are like four characters could take up one, and if you have something that's indented four or five levels deep, it multiplies out, versus using tabs, it is much less of that Braille display
0: width gets wasted on indentation. No, I mean, I just feel so strongly about this one that I can't understand how anybody feels strongly in the opposite direction.
1: Yeah, um, I added I, I, and so I replied to the tweet. Hey, I linked my article on my blog about the whole thing. I added that that little exchange that I had with the guy on Twitter to the blog post. So it kind of became this like self-referential thing, which was kind of funny to me. And and still I got comments. I think honestly probably the comments, the negative comments that I was getting were people who didn't take the time to read. They were just like, "Oh, I like spaces, you like tabs,
0: so I'm going to say right, mean right. things to you." Right, like, and I'll tell you, I don't have any real visual impairments. I mean, I'm nearsighted, right? I think that means I can I can see much better up close than I can distance wise. But that's really my only issue. And even me, when I'm reading code that has only two space indentation, and I'm scanning the code vertically, I actually have trouble following the code, like. And I don't know how to describe this very well, but it's like my eye, I have trouble keeping it in a vertical line. Like My eye starts to jump around Mm -hmm. for reasons that I don't fully understand because the indentation isn't very clear to me. And I think, I don't know if it's like my brain is trying to constantly jump back up to previous lines of code to see where that indentation was. But when I'm looking at two-space indentation, I literally have trouble reading it. It's like my I have trouble focusing on the lines of code and I never have that problem with tab indentation.
1: Well, I don't think I have the exact same physical malady, if that's what we're going to refer to it as, box it in there. But I can relate. I, I just have that same sort of trouble keeping things vertically aligned. I even have a, a plugin for my IDE that will draw small, low contrast lines uh, at the like left edge of every indentation level. And still, it's difficult to keep things aligned. And so I often find myself using a tab with the four or five characters just to help it stand out. Yeah, totally. And it's nice to be able to change it as an IDE setting. <laughs> okay, anyway. So, uh, oh, yeah.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> We're both preaching to the choir here, so let's just move on.
0: All right, all right. I'll do my last addition here, which is that I'd like to know how much contact engineers have with customers and or with the supporting teams And that's simply because I find in my experience, there's nothing as grounding and focusing as understanding what your customers are actually doing and the pain points that they're having. And the teams that I see that don't have that line of sight with actual customers and actual customer problems, they just have a very different mindset. And it's this mindset of disconnection. And and that can be a not as bad as I'm making it out to be. But I think that people who deal with customers, to some degree, they're just more focused in how they think about product building. And I'd want to make sure that I'm in an environment where if I'm not dealing with customers directly, I'm at least dealing directly with the people who deal with the customers directly. So that I have that that at least still vibrant feeling of customer pain. I don't want to be I don't want to be someone whose only contact with customers is through tickets.
1: Yeah, I agree. And I think that if I can make an amendment to that, I, it's weird because I, I don't want to like say all these things are required for every team. But at the same time, there's definitely a benefit that I see to talking to somebody like face-to-face where you can see their face, even in the current unprecedented times, even though they've been precedented for two years now. If you can get on a Zoom with somebody, even if you can't go to their office or whatever, if you can just like look them in the eye and hear their pain and let them give you that additional context that they're not going to bother to type into the ticket, that can go so much further, right? Like There are people who submit support tickets for us, and I have no idea who the person is, never met them, have no idea what they look like, have never had a conversation with them. And it's so easy to write them off as lazy or ignorant about the way the application is supposed to work. But if you just take that time to meet them, it's like, oh, okay, well, they haven't been given the proper training. So let's hook them up with somebody who can give them the training. Or they have constraints that maybe they don't have time to do everything that they're supposed to be doing in this process or something because of other business concerns. So I think that face-to-face opportunity is really important.
0: Yeah,
1: 100%. Cool. Well, so we already kind of touched on this one a little bit. Do you automate almost everything that can be automated? I think that uh, it's easy to fall into a trap of like, if something can be automated, it should. So like, that's why I threw the almost in there, right? There's the, of course, there's an XKCD for everything. There's there's an XKCD chart of like, should you automate it? And I, I think that's a good baseline. I would say I would take things a little further. Like he has a chart or his chart shows kind of a line, like you should automate on this side of the line and you shouldn't automate on this side of the line, I would be a little bit more forgiving, I think, like automate more than he would. But uh, that's just because I feel like those automations tend to compound over time in a really beneficial way.
0: So, Yeah, I agree. I wish more stuff in my life was automated. And uh, I think it's on the Ship It podcast. So it's one of the Change Log podcasts. They're talking about, that you should, when you're starting up a new project, you should really make the first effort to get all of the kind of platforming automation stuff done, like the build step and making sure that things compile and can be pushed to production. Because once you get that done and working smoothly, then everything else just goes so much more efficiently and quickly and and you just get so much more done. For
1: real. Yeah, toil is a whole, that's like something, I don't know if we've done a topic on that or if we've even talked about it at all but like toil is such a big deal that i find these days and something that really has to be squashed with prejudice so yeah all right cool let's move on we're running pretty long here it's half the squad twice the show kind of thing here so my next one is do you send your people to training and conferences i think that there's that that famous like what if we pay to send them to training and then they leave and then the other guy re- responsible well, what if we don't and they stay um
0: <laughs> i love that one
1: Yeah, I think that it's such a no-brainer and you have to value continually improving your team skills. And the only way you could do that is to give them the time and the budget to, to improve it. So to me, that seems like something, again, a lot of this goes back to you're given the opportunity to interview the team or the company at the same time that they're interviewing you. Right. And these are the types of things that you should be asking them. So. All right. And then the last one that I wrote down was, do you set career growth goals for your people, for your team? I think that's really important, right? Like it's one thing to be able to perform on the team. It's another thing for the team to make you better and to help you progress in your career. And I think that those are, when a team does that, it's, it says it, it kind of brings them up to a higher level. It says something about how much they care about your goals as much
0: as their goals. Yeah. I, this is a tough one for me and it's not that I disagree with you at all. It's that I've, I have never been effective at thinking about my own career goals and my career path. I get so mired in the technical details of the work. Am I building the right thing? Do I understand what the heck I'm doing? Am I better technically than I was yesterday? I often fail to even consider what does my job look like in a year or five years, or what do I want to do? So it's, I agree with you. It's just a point of failure for me in general is career oriented thinking. Cool. All
1: right. Let's, uh, let's kill it there because we've been going for a really long time. So this episode of working code is brought to you by revisiting 22 year old lists and seeing (laughs) what they do and don't still have to offer you and listeners like you, if you're enjoying the show, you should consider supporting us on Patreon. It's the best way to help keep the show running. Your donations cover the cost of recording and editing. And uh, we couldn't do this every week without you. So thank you. Uh, Special thanks, of course, as usual, to our top patrons, Monty, Gavin, and Sean. If you'd like to help us out, you can go to patreon.com slash workingcodepod. All of our patrons get early access to new episodes and the after show. And when I say early access, what I mean is generally we're recording this tonight on Monday, usually we record on Thursdays, and usually that episode that we record on Thursday night is available for patrons by Saturday at the latest, often on Friday. So that's the kind of early access that you get. And if you're not a patron, you're getting it almost two weeks after we record it. So yeah, if you want early access, that's how you get it. You become a patron. You can do so for as little as $4 a month. And we also do the after show and patrons get that as well. So your homework this week is to tell a friend. I still believe that word of mouth is probably the best way to do marketing for anything. And if you like this show, one of the best ways that you can help us out is to tell somebody that you think would also like the show. I guess hopefully that means your colleagues, but you know, if your grandma wants to listen, we'll take it. And as always, we could use your topics and questions to discuss on the show. You can send those to us at Working Code Pod on Twitter or Instagram. You can join our Discord and discuss them with us there or submit them there you can join by going to workingcode.dev slash discord. If you want to email us, you can send it to workingcodepod at gmail.com. Or if you want to record a voice memo of your question or suggestion, you can send that to the same email address, workingcodepod at gmail.com. That's going to do it for us this week. We'll catch you next week. And until
0: then, remember folks, your heart matters. You've been listening to Working Code with your hosts, Adam, Ben, Carol, and Tim. If you're enjoying the show, please feel free to rate, subscribe, and review on your preferred podcast listening platform. We really appreciate that effort. We'll catch you on the next episode of Working Code.